you know, summer is winding down. Summer's over uh, for many of us because school is restarting. I haven't been in school for a long time, but I do remember when school would start up, there'd be a process of orientation. And that was a way to make sure that new people in the school and those who'd been there for a while too knew where the halls were, knew where their classes were, knew where the teachers were, you know, some sense of figuring out where am I at, who do I need to know, where do I need to go. We're going to do a little bit of that this morning just related to Lion and Lamb school years. The school year is sort of transitional for most people in life, and so it's a great time, the end of summer, beginning of fall, just to remind people as schedules sort of regularize again, uh, tie that into the life of the church as well. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. I won't be in any particular scripture. We'll look at several. By the way, you do have study sheets if you have a bulletin, so you can follow along with most of those as we go. If you're new to Lion and Lamb, hopefully you'll get some sense of some of the key priorities in the church. If you're older in the church, you've been here for a while, most of this will probably be reminders. Some of it may be new even for you too, though. You know, Lion and Lamb is not singularly unique, uh, except perhaps in the sense of the, the individuals who are here, you know, we share things in common with all other churches, but there are enough areas that are different enough from enough other churches that a few areas at least bear talking about when we're thinking of orientation, the direction of the church, and the life of the church. I'm going to look at three of these areas this morning, church leadership, church finances, and the church service, meaning the Sunday morning service collectively. If you were in the adult Sunday school class this morning, coincidentally, you've heard already about two of these Uh, Not the church service, but church leadership and church finances. So for you already, some of what I'm sharing this morning will be repeat from the Sunday school. Church leadership, Lion and Lamb, is led by a group of elders. That is the church leadership. We do not have, like many churches have, a a senior pastor role, an associate pastor role, the, the elders and deacons truly are the leadership bearers here at Lion and Lamb. The, uh, the precedent for this, if you look in the New Testament, if you study anything about church leadership at all, what the early church practiced for church leadership is pretty clear. So if you look, some of the few verses that we will look at this morning, uh, Acts 14, verse 23, when Paul was on his first missionary journey, and he's going through the area of Turkey today and Southeast Europe, after churches had been born in each of these cities, they came back through those towns, and they established elders in every city. And elders, the the model that the church leadership is based on is a little bit like the synagogue in Jewish days. You know, you had different kinds of leadership, even in Israel itself. There was a leadership that was tied to the temple, but there was also leadership at a local level in each of the synagogues. And the leadership style you see in the churches appears to be based on the synagogue level, which was a multitude of male leaders. So in Acts 14.23, it says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So in the very early days of evangelism and church planting in this Gentile world, elders were appointed as the key leaders in every one of the churches Paul went through and established. In Acts 20, 28, which is, is for me, if you're in church leadership, it's a somber reminder. 
it's a serious reminder of the responsibilities church leaders have. In Acts 20, Paul is headed back to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to be arrested. God has told him, this is what you're headed for. And he knows there's some folks he probably won't see again. And so he's getting this opportunity and to sort of give give key people his last words. And so he calls the elders from Ephesus to meet him. And he talks to them as he's heading on to Jerusalem and to his arrest. And he says this in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his blood. The somber reminder of the responsibility is that elders are responsible for the leadership of the people in the church that Christ purchased with his blood. There's a sense in which you give account for Christ's purchase as a leader in one of his churches. That's the serious note. But the practical one here is that Paul says the Holy Spirit, God himself, has made you the elders over this church, and it is to you that the oversight and the shepherding, the health of the church is entrusted. This is to elders. This is not to those with the gift of pastoring, though we'll talk about that in just a minute. This is to the elders of the church. And then the last one I'll touch on is Titus 1, verse 5. Titus was one of Paul's protégés, and Titus, like Timothy, was given commands of setting some things up in order in different churches. And so Paul says to Titus, it's for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. These passages treat elders specifically. If you look in Acts 6 and in 1 Timothy 3, you'll see deacons brought into this mix as well. But it's very clear from the earliest days of the church that Christ's cause in leadership was to pull a multiple number of men as elders and deacons, and they would be the leaders of that local church. They would be the ones responsible for that oversight. Now, in saying that, and that's, that's the role that we have. If you look on the back of the bulletin you've got, the elders and deacons are named there. By the way, too, if you come to the welcome class, you can meet these leaders uh, individually, hear some of their stories, and know where they plug in the church as well. So, Lion and Lamb is led by a group of elders and deacons. That's the leadership group. Within that, we also understand that not only does God call people to serve in those roles but that functionally God the Holy Spirit also gifts people within the church with what are called spiritual gifts. The one passage I would bring up about this this morning is in Ephesians 4, and Paul says there that he, that would be Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You'll see spiritual gifts lists that include some other leadership roles in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 also. So under the leadership of elders and deacons, we recognize that Christ also gifts people in very specific ways. So Christ gifts some to specifically teach and some to specifically lead and some specifically in the areas of administration. And so under the aegis or the responsibility of the elders and deacons, we recognize that people are gifted by Christ in different ways. Leaders are gifted by Christ in different ways. And we want those gifts being exercised in the church, not hampered, but we want them done so under the leadership of the elders and deacons. I do most of the the, uh, teaching in Lion and Lamb, and I'm sort of the, the best known face of the church just at leadership level. But when I talk to other people and they say, what do you do at the church? I tell them I am an elder. 
And when I sign marriage licenses, I write, I am an elder. That is my role. Because I want to make sure that I'm communicating to others, I am one of several leaders in a local church. That's the, that's the role I fill at Lion and Lamb. Now, my spiritual gifts are, are pastoral. They're shepherding, they're teaching, and they're leadership. But when I identify for others what my role in the church is, I always tell them I'm an elder. My spiritual gifts are one thing. And those are exercised under the leadership of the rest of the elders and deacons. So the leadership of Lion and Lamb really is a multiple group of guys, of elders and deacons. They're committed to serve for at least a year. I think all the men on board now have been on... We've added a few just this year, but the others for at least a few years. And um, we look over time. You're not trying to make someone a leader who isn't, but you look over time to see who it looks like God is using. Who's, who's an example for the flock? Who is God using to disciple, to lead, to nurture others in the body? And you seek to recognize those folks and invite them up into that leadership role as well. But at Lion and Lamb, the leaders, are it's not a pastoral team. It's not a senior pastor and associates. It really is the elders and deacons. And those in ministry and mosaic leadership, my leadership, that's all understood to be done under the aegis of that leadership group. So that's a little different from most other churches. The second area I wanted to highlight this morning, just on orienting that we do things a little different typically, is on finances. We do not take offerings during the church service. Uh, this is a little unusual. And uh, most, for most churches that take offerings during the service, the thought is this, and it, it's, a, it's a great thought. I have no problem with it. Um, when we give financially to the church, it is an act of worship. Scripture calls it an act of worship. And so it makes sense that when the church is gathered corporately to worship, it makes sense seeing our financial gifts to Christ through the church as part of that worship. There's a great tie in there. And it's appropriate. On the other hand, the church has come to be identified by so many, both because of local churches and because of uh, Christians and perhaps sometimes so-called Christians on television. The church has come to be identified by many as sort of a money-grubbing entity an entity that exists to take money from your pocket. And as a church, we've always wanted to make sure that people knew we are not about the money at the end of the day. We are not after people for your money. You know, in fact, um, if we were, this would be the wrong place for you or anybody else to be. There's a great passage in Acts 8 when a guy has heard about Christ and his name is Simon. And it says, Simon believes. And he sees that the Holy Spirit is given when the apostles pray for these guys, these new believers. And so he says, hey, let me give you this money and you give me the ability to do that too. And Peter just nails him. Peter rebukes him and says, your, your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Well, there's a sense in which for the church, guys, if we're about the money... We've got hell to pay when we see Christ face to face as church leaders. It's not about the money. And we want to make sure when people come in, and for those who are part of body life at Lion and Lamb, that we are not in this for the money. We want to honor Christ. We want to do all the things Christ has given us to do. And that's going to involve finances along the way. But we just we want to make sure people know on the front end, we are not after you. For, we have no financial motive to pursue anyone. 
And this ties to a second thing that we do. Uh, the giving box is up here. I will point that out. We, we, uh, we want to reflect God's kind of character in the way we handle money ourselves and the way it comes in and the way we disperse it. So one of the things we do as a church, we try to be very conscientiously generous with the funds that come in. Um, Bob talked about this a little bit in Sunday school class this morning. I ran the numbers yesterday just again to check. We've generally been about 20% of what comes in in giving goes out directly to ministries not tied to line and lamp. 20% is normal for what goes out of this church just to other ministries. Uh, It's about 25% right now out of this year's budget. When we look at the ministries we support and simply the gifts we give to people because we know they have needs, about one in every four dollars that comes into Lion Lamb goes out. It's not related to general budget or anything else that's going on in the life of the church because we understand God's been generous to us and we want as a default position to be generous to, to others. We understand that that reflects what God values. We've also chosen as a church to be financially very conservative. And being financially conservative sort of translates to we have no debt. So again, we have no financial stress or angst by which we're saying to each other at leadership meetings, we've got to grow as a church because we've got debt to take care of. We've got mortgage payments or whatever. Now... We've talked about, in fact, we've talked to the church repeatedly recently. We made an offer on a building not long ago that didn't go through. Um, But at some point, we're going to have to provide larger facilities for this church to meet in. And I'm sure our financial needs will rise. But but we're still, in fact, you can pray about this. We're still just in the process of saying, Lord, how do you want to handle this? What do you want us to do or not do? You know, as families, most of us take on sometimes uh, what would be considered modest debt because if we're buying a house, most of us don't have the cash to buy a house. We've talked about this as a church. What are we willing to do corporately if God presents us with an opportunity for a building? But these principles still apply. We don't want to get in a situation where we have anxiety because we have debt that has to be taken care of. We don't want anything going on in the church to make us see people as anything other than folks that Christ might want us to serve. We don't want to come at it with a motive that says we're in it for something we can get from you. So financially, it's not that money's not important. We, we take this very seriously. I mean, you read the scriptures and you can go online. June 28, 2009 teaching titled Live Like a Liberal is all about giving and sort of just a biblical perspective on what God wants us to think about finances and what kind of attitude and character he wants us to have. But we don't make giving a part of the worship service. We don't talk a lot about finances, not because it's not important. It is, but we simply want folks to know that's not what drives this church. And we were very intentional about being generous. One other thing I might mention too, when you give, there are envelopes that allow you to be thoughtful about your giving. You can designate where you want your giving to go in the church. And I'll mention this again at the end. But we encourage people not only to be generous because God's generous, but to be thoughtful. I generally, if somebody hits me up for giving right on the spot, you know, on the phone or on the street, I generally don't because I understand from 2 Corinthians that God wants me to be thoughtful about my giving. So I generally say, give me your information and I'll pray about it. So you can be thoughtful about your giving too and you can designate where that giving goes. 
The last thing that I want to talk about of these three, and, and the one I'll spend the most time on, is just related to our Sunday services. Sunday services here look a little different than many churches do. One is just this. On the first Sunday of every month, we change what we're doing. So there's no Sunday school hour on the first Sunday of every month. On the first Sunday of each month, instead of coming an hour before the worship service, we stay an hour or so after the worship service and we have potluck meal together down the hall in the cafeteria. And on that same Sunday, we also have, instead of the regular open worship, we have the Lord's Supper. So once a month, we're just making sure that those in the church have an opportunity just to get to know each other more, just to have fellowship around the meal together. And we tie that with the Lord's Supper because you see those things tied together in the New Testament. So for instance, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was, of course, at a supper. We call it the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal, but it was a meal with his disciples. And that's when he said, drink this this juice or this wine, break this bread, do this in remembrance of me, was in the context of a meal. And in the early church, it was typically celebrated around a meal table also. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this, which I'll mention for another reason here in a minute. So we, on the first Sunday of each month, at least 12 times a year, we don't come early for Sunday school. We stay late for fellowship and a meal just to hang out with each other and invest in getting to know each other. And we tie that with the Lord's Supper and the worship service as well. Uh, Most churches uh, have the worship first and the teaching second. And we we have flipped that. And we've done that, I believe, since our inception. We have the teaching first and we have the worship second. If you teach, you know that it is far preferable to teach after worship. If you're the teacher, it's far better to teach afterwards. And it's for this reason. Oftentimes when people come to church on Sunday morning, they're still sleepy. They're not fully alert or awake or engaged. But if they've gone through the worship time, they've sung songs, they've probably been encouraged by something, challenged by something in the worship time itself. When you come up to speak, you have an audience that's much more receptive typically. And so to teach after worship is a nice thing if you're the teacher. The reason we don't is because we want what we hear in the Scriptures to inform our worship that follows afterwards. And this is in part based on Jesus' words to a woman in Samaria in John chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus said there, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. If you teach... Second, teaching is sort of seen as the primary thing the church is doing, coming together to hear teaching. And I don't want to minimize the importance of teaching, but Jesus says God the Father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so we put the teaching on the front end because we want to be those kind of informed worshipers so that when we go to God in worship, we're bringing in our minds the truth of the Scriptures Lord willing, that we just heard during the teaching. We want to worship in spirit and in truth, and that's why the teaching is first and the worship is second. Uh, This whole teaching this morning comes because of this next thing that I'm going to cover, and this is called open worship. How many here have been in a church besides Lion and Lamb that has practiced open worship? Would you raise your hand? That's 
pretty good. I'd say 20%, maybe 25%. Open worship is a dangerous animal. And I'm only half kidding. Uh, open worship is, is a very dangerous thing. It's a very powerful thing. And the power of, of what we do can either be positive or it can be negative. But open worship is the ability of anyone in the church to publicly, in the congregation on Sunday morning, offer to God praise. And this is not practiced in many churches. And, and I'll spend sort of the rest of my time just talking to you about this. I've, I've been in meetings in the past, open worship, that were really nothing less than spectacularly disastrous. I mean, total damage to the church. I mean, damage that some, some churches didn't get over. Really. Really damaging. And, of course, I've been in other places like Lion and Lamb, where open worship has been very encouraging, very helpful. You hear from people, you hear things you'd never hear otherwise if that opportunity were not present. So this forum has the opportunity to really bless or be really, really discouraging. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, he was writing to a group that in some ways had a whole lot of good things going on, and in other ways they really were a train wreck. And so he, in part, writes them to address and to correct a number of things that are going on in their church. And the church at Corinth had different kinds of meetings. You know, if we're here Sunday morning, we're thinking about worship and teaching. And if you go to a home group, that's a different kind of meeting. Or if you go to a prayer group, that's a different kind of meeting. Well, they had different kinds of meetings, too. So when you read 1 Corinthians 11, you're meeting about the, reading about the meeting of the church where they ate a meal together a love feast, and they remembered the Lord in His death and resurrection. And in chapter 11, Paul writes to correct the abuses of this meeting. But when you get to chapter 14, he's speaking about a different kind of meeting. And the Corinthians had open worship writ large. They had a meeting that was all open worship. Now, these guys were not like most of us. They were not bashful. And there were a lot of people who could speak. They had speaking gifts and abilities. This is the Greek world, and being an able orator was, was seen as a big deal. And they had a lot of able orators. And so part of what was happening in this open worship meeting in Corinth was that people were so infatuated with their own speaking and their own abilities and their own desire to be perceived as important by others in the church, they were speaking over the top of each other. And they were speaking on and on and on. And some people were praying in languages or speaking in languages that other people didn't know. And it was confusing and it was chaotic. And so Paul writes to the church and he says, listen, we've got to put some, some rules, some constraints on this because Christ is not honored in what you're doing or the way you're doing it. And others in the church are not edified. So Paul said in this open worship meeting, Christ should be honored and those there should be edified. They should be encouraged. Part of what Paul said was in verse 26, and he said, part of the outcome of the corrections he was writing to this church, he said, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. So he writes to curb the excess and give these guidelines so that Christ is honored and the church is edified or built up. <clears throat> It is difficult for us 
in a skinny-down version of open worship, it's still a difficult thing for open worship to, to do open worship and to do it well. Unlike the Greeks that Paul was writing in his day, we, we as a culture, we tend to be timid or frightened or fearful about speaking up in front of others. So, you know, in all the surveys about what do you fear most, public speaking is always near the top of the list. So for us as a culture today, we generally don't have the problem of everybody's racing to talk over the top of each other. Sometimes they just don't want to speak up at all. So sometimes in open worship, it might be very quiet. And that could be a good thing because maybe people are being thoughtful. And sometimes worship is just being quiet. And that's fine. Other times I think there's, there's quiet in our open worship because people aren't coming thoughtfully to worship God and to contribute something. And sometimes it's just because they're afraid. We're afraid. We're timid. We're bashful. And so that makes open worship a challenge for us. Another thing, even in our, our space here, which is relatively small, it's hard to hear people in open worship. And for this reason alone, we've had discussions in the past of, as we grow and when we occupy larger spaces, can we still feasibly carry on open worship? Will this thing still work for us? Do you have people stand in lines and do you pass a microphone around or whatever? Because it's simply hard to hear others. Even in this setting, this small setting, it's hard to hear. And then the last thing, it's, it's, a, it's a wild card. It's unscripted. And so you don't know what's coming. And so for some of us, we sit here and we're worried during open worship. What's going to be said? Um, <clears throat> Years ago, when I was in a church, uh, a big church, they were going to start an open worship time, an open mic, they called it, open mic. And a guy who'd come from a church that practiced open mic warned them. He said, guys, you don't know what you're getting in for. And so the first Sunday of open mic, sure enough, here in the worship service, the time comes, the microphone's being passed around. The guy who warned them his father stands up with the mic to basically disagree with everything that was shared in the teaching. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I thought, wow, you know, here we go. Here's the roller coaster. Here we go. Uh, you never know what you're going to get. And because of that, sometimes we sit and we worry. And I know there have been times in open worship here. Um, there have been people who are more emotional, let's say, than I am. And sometimes that emotion comes out. And I know people are sitting there freaking out, wondering, oh, what's she? Sorry, it's almost always a woman. What's she going to say? <laughs> you know, where is this going? And I try to remind myself, Lord, you know, we entrust this to you and we'll deal with anything that comes up. But <clears throat> having said all that and having told you, having confessed to you that open worship is fraught with potential disaster, there are reasons that we do it. And let me tell you why. We believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2, there's two key verses there, verse 5 and 9, that talk about this. You know, priests generally do two things. Priests offer something to God. They're a mediator. And then they represent God to men, or to mankind, or to people. When Peter wrote, the new church, this young church, when he was still alive, Peter said this, and he's using Old Testament language that had been communicated to Israel, God's chosen people, and he brings that up, 
And he applies it to Christians in the early church. And he says to them in verse 5, you are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood for this purpose, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter, writing to the church, says, you are priests and you're called to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not not bloody animals on an altar, but spiritual sacrifices to Christ. In verse 9, he carries that thought on. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. For this reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Every Christian is a priest before God. Young or old, men or women, if you're a believer, you're a priest, and you've been called to offer up spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so for us as a church, in our worship time together, we see open worship as a chance for those in the body of Christ to exercise their spiritual calling as priests and to offer up spiritual sacrifices to Christ and declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's a big deal. And potentially it's a huge blessing. It's an opportunity to honor Christ personally. Jesus said, uh, He's quoted in Hebrews, um, in the midst of my brethren, I'll declare your praises. In the midst of the brethren, in the midst of the church, in the midst of your spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll declare your praises. And open worship is an opportunity to do that, to exercise our spiritual priesthood. Now, we are putting open worship, this venue, inside a service that has other things going on as well, teaching and the rest of the worship time. So this service isn't entirely open worship. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, you'll see several things talked about that we're not practicing in our own open worship. They had a meeting that was devoted just to open worship. Because this is also done with teaching and general worship also, we have tried to skinny down the focus of open worship to say primarily these two things. We're asking in open worship that it be praise, thanks, declarations to God about God and His character and what He's done for us. If you read in 1 Corinthians 14, it brings up things like exhortation and teachings, etc. Again, because we're bringing this into meeting that has other elements as well, we're asking this to be narrowed down, tapered down to thanksgiving declared to God, not teaching and exhortation addressed primarily to the church. If you have the gumption to speak up, and I hope you do, we also ask that it be brief enough that others can participate as well. That's usually not an issue. We also ask that you be as loud and as clear as you can be, just because it's hard to hear each other. In the Corinthian church, when someone was praying in a language that others didn't know, Paul said, this is a problem. Because even though you've been encouraged because you've prayed, he said, no one else knows what you said. And they're not edified. So that if someone prayed in a language others didn't know, someone was to interpret and tell the church what had been said. If we can't hear you when you 
declare Christ's praise, Paul says we can't say amen at the end of your giving thanks. We're not edified just because we couldn't hear what you said. So be as loud and as clear as you can when you do that, please. If you want more information just on the church in general, you can go to the lionandlambchurch.com website. You can read the mission statement, the We Believe statement. It's on there. Most of the teachings that have been given here in the last several years are on there as well. But it's a great venue. It's a great forum on your own time just to learn more about that. Just on applications... If you're trying to plug in, if Lion Lamb is new to you and you're trying to plug in, or if you've been here a while and you still have questions, it is just a great thing to get to know who the leaders are. The names are on the back of the bulletin. If you have an opportunity and can, I would strongly encourage you to come to the remaining four weeks of the welcome class because you'll continue to meet the faces of the leaders of Lion and Lamb. You'll get to know a little bit about them, their, their life history and stories, and also the niches that they have responsibility for. So that if you have questions about finances, you know who Bob Hannibal is and you can ask Bob about them. If you have questions about church leadership in general, you know who Kent is and you can talk to Kent. If you have an idea or you want to plug in or you want to see something done, you'll know the folks who are in leadership that you can directly talk to. So it's worth getting to know who's in leadership. Related to giving and finances, again, you won't hear a lot about giving on the front end, uh, up front here in the church. That doesn't mean we don't think it's important. We simply want to make sure people know that finances are, are not what drive the church. We do invite you, as we try and practice as a church, to be generous in your giving, to be thoughtful in your giving, to provide for the things in the future that we assume God will bring our way. And then last, just in the area of when we gather together, I know oftentimes people feel like no one would know if I wasn't at church. I'm a face in a crowd. And two things to that. One is people do notice when you're not here. We have an impact on each other even by our presence. We have an impact on each other. So don't assume that you're a face in a crowd. And if you feel like, though, I'm not plugged in, certainly... Talk to me or talk to any of the other leaders because there's ways to plug in and you shouldn't feel like you're a face in a crowd that no one knows, nobody cares about, no one would know if you were or weren't here on a Sunday morning. And coming here to worship, I would just encourage you, God says he's looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth, and that's the kind of people and that's the kind of church we want to be. And in open worship, we invite you, we encourage you, we exhort you to practice your spiritual priesthood by offering up spiritual sacrifices to God to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is just a huge, huge deal. It is the beginning of a school year. If you guys see yourself as freshmen or seniors... At Lion and Lamb, hopefully there's a little bit of a sense of orientation, sort of on the big picture at least. If you have any questions, any of those in leadership would be glad to talk with you about those. But Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, this is your church. It's not ours. We are members of your body. Father, you call some of us to roles of leadership. You gift some of us in roles of teaching or leadership. But Lord, the truth is you gift and call all of us in service, in ministry, to honor you, to bless others. Lord, we want to be real about the things you've called us to. We don't want to play at church. 
you have better things for us to do and, and we have better things to give our lives to than simply playing at something. We ask that you'd help us be authentic and real. We ask that you'd fill us with more of your spirit, that you would enliven us, Lord, that you'd fill us up to the fullness of Christ, as Paul says. Lord, that you would make us, this church, this local expression of Christ on the earth, make us all that you want us to be, nothing that you don't want us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.